Okay, everyone. Let's. Uh, okay, yeah. Let's get started here. Today, I have the distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Rahul Nanchal. Uh, Dr. Nanchal is an associate professor of uh, pulmonary critical care medicine at Medical College of Wisconsin. He's the medical ICU director there as well. Uh, he has a vast amount of experience with managing uh, cirrhosis and stage liver disease in uh, patients, uh, which is evidenced by his multiple book chapters, peer-reviewed manuscripts, uh, uh, lectures that are both national and international in nature. He also uh, is the principal investigator on a study examining extracorporeal liver assist devices for decompensated alcohol liver disease. And he's the co-chair for the Society of Critical Care Medicine and European Society of Intensive Care Medicine Task Force on Hepatic Failure in the ICU. So it's a real pleasure to have him here and uh, enjoy. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the invite. Uh, I would recommend, uh, no matter whether you like this talk or not, at the end, when you go back, please drink a lot of alcohol. <laughs> okay. So I can, you know, so it, it, it is sort of hard fitting in everything in an hour. Uh, I could talk, probably talk about this for days, but I'll try to do my best and, you know, show you some newer evidence, some newer data. Uh, I'll show you some of the... Uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you some about the, uh, something. Uh, I'll tell you some things about common ma manifestations of extrahepatic issues in uh, decompensated cirrhosis. Okay, so I don't really have any disclosures that are relevant. Uh, one thing that I do want to tell you, I'm not opinionated. I'm just always right, and and, and of course I have all of these biases because I'm a You know, I'm a a clinician and I love clinical medicine, which also means that I'm not going to be talking about a lot of uh, molecular pathophysiology today. Okay, so this is sort of the outline of my talk. Uh, I will talk, and there are a couple of slides and some of the mechanisms of these manifestations. Uh, I don't think a talk about uh, decompensation, you know, the manifestations of decompensation in liver failure is complete without a discussion on acute and chronic liver failure, which is a new entity, probably not as well, well recognized, but probably not as well picked up as it should be. And then I'll talk about encephalopathy, infectious complications, acute kidney injury, some gastrointestinal issues, uh, uh, respiratory complications if we have time. Okay, so uh, the I think the if you boil it all down and I were to uh, and, and I were to say well what is the central pathophysiological mechanism of all of these uh, deteriorations of organs and you know all of these unique manifestations such as cirrhotic cardiomyopathy, hepatorenal syndrome, uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome encephalopathy, it boils down to the hyperdynamic circulation and the vasodilation that is associated with being cirrhotic with the chronic liver disease state. Now, there are multiple mechanisms to this, uh, you know, to this vasodilated state. One of them is that, you know, there is uh, increase in portal pressures, splanchnic vasodilation, uh, splanchnic blood flow increases, and so, you know, there is a perpetuation of, of this portal hypertension when, you know, when you, when portal hypertension develops, uh, there are several portosystemic shunts that open up that actually lead to more splanchnic that uh, actually lead to more uh, splanchnic vasodilation, and it sort of perpetuates a, it's a it sort of perpetuates a vicious cycle, and therefore 
most people with cirrhosis, especially advanced liver disease, you know, it is actually progressive decline. So, you know, it's a, there's a, uh, cirrhosis is a state of progressive decline. Might take many years, but, you know, there is, if you actually follow these patients over time, you know, they, they, they are steadily deteriorating. Their liver functions are deteriorating, and you know, and there, and and over time, many of them develop all of these extrahepatic manifestations and complications. Okay, so uh, this is the same thing: splenic vasodilation and an increase in splenic flow actually um, maintains portal hypertension. Uh, and again, you know, there are lots of molecular mechanisms behind it. Nitric oxide is implicated in everything. I will implicate it in you know this this as well, and so. Uh, yeah, and and uh, you know, and so this is sort of the uh, it's a, sort of the basic pathophysiological mechanisms behind uh, you know portal hypertension and the extrahepatic manifestations of cirrhosis. Okay, this is just a cartoon uh, that shows you the same things that I talked about. Uh, so uh, portal hypertension leads to splanchnic and uh, systemic vasodilation. This decrease this leads to a decrease in effective <coughs> arterial volume or arterial underfilling. Uh, which leads to an activation of all of these uh, uh, neurohormonal systems. Some of them are the sympathetic nervous system, the reticular activating system. There are several others which I won't talk about. Uh, eventually leads to sodium and water retention, ascites and hyponatremia, renal vasoconstriction, decreased renal blood flow. Uh, the decreased, one thing that will, uh, you know, that we'll come back to again and again is probably a central tenet of my talk is this, this decreased effective arterial blood volume is the site of second hit, which means that, you know, whatever is causing sudden decompensation or sudden deterioration happens at this level. So, you know, so the, it's, it's sort of a tenuous circulation, and so if you get sepsis or you get gastrointestinal hemorrhage, you're overdiuresed, uh, you know, suddenly you, suddenly this effective arterial blood volume even, you know, goes down for even further, and, you know, uh, leading to a variety of organ dysfunctions and a variety of manifestations of cirrhosis. Okay, uh, a couple of slides on what some of the hemodynamic challenges are. We already talked about this hypodynamic circulation, which means, uh, you know, in cirrhotics, the blood pressure is sort of lower at baseline, which makes it hard to define, you know, what, what hypotension and what shock is. Uh, the fluid status assessment in cirrhotics becomes very, very difficult, especially if you have tensocytes, abdominal compartment syndrome, or in elevated intra-abdominal pressures. Uh, static indices uh, no longer work. There is some consideration that you might, you know, you might need to use pulse contour devices or echo to, uh, you know, if you, if you really want accurate assessments of volume status. The utility of lactates and central venous oxygen saturations are limited because they are abnormal even in pre-shock values. Uh, and then, you know, of course, minimal insults because, you know, you already have the tenuous circulation. Minimal insults sudden lead to sudden hemodynamic deterioration. And if you are not very cognizant about these things, you, know, you can suddenly have a patient in multiple organ failure. Uh, there is evidence, now I, I am not going to talk about this a whole lot in my talk, but there is evidence of something called cirrhotic cardiomyopathy, which shares similarities to septic cardiomyopathy, okay? There are uh, abnormalities in the conduction system, there are abnormalities in diastolic function, and there are abnormalities in systolic function. And if you actually look at hepatorenal syndrome, uh, the people who develop hepatorenal syndrome despite having elevated cardiac outputs, if you study hepatorenal syndrome versus non-hepatorenal syndrome, the uh, elevation, the cardiac output in people who develop uh, uh, hepatorenal syndrome is less elevated than 
people who do not develop hepatorenal syndrome, suggesting that perhaps, you know, this circulation is so stressed and it has reached the end of its compensatory mechanisms and that you, the cardiac output is just not able to increase any further, you know, to, to uh, sort of perfuse the kidneys. Okay. In the setting of ascites, cardiac preload can be compromised by IVC compression. I will talk about this a little more during my talk. Uh, and then there is a high, you know, there is suggestion of a high incidence of adrenal uh, insufficiency. So in shock states, uh, the threshold to start testosterone should probably, at least you should probably be thinking about it more often. You know, uh, we've all, we all know the data on, you know, uh, uh, steroids and severe sepsis, but I think this represents a unique state and, you know, and adrenal insufficiency is, is found way more commonly in, you know, people who are cirrhosis and develop hemodynamic compromise than people who, uh, who, are, uh, who are not cirrhotic and develop severe sepsis. And then potopulmonary hypertension, which is a unique manifestation of cirrhosis, might require invasive monitoring with Swan-Gans catheters. Okay, this is a, uh, these are, uh, the next few slides are on acute on chronic liver failure. So this is a widely recognized entity. It's still not very clearly defined. Uh, and you know you have to contrast it with the natural progression of cirrhosis. So the natural progression of cirrhosis is one of, you know, you know, of progressive de decline. And acute on chronic liver failure is an acute insult that occurs in relatively preserved renal function, and then there is a steep decline leading to organ failure. This is a unique pathophysiology, and, you know, and, uh, and the key characteristic is that you can actually reverse this, all right? There is, it is associated with a high mortality, but it is in some circumstances reversible. You never get back to baseline liver function that you started on, but you can, uh, you know, there, there is a reversible component to this. So the American Association of Liver Disease and the American and the European Association of Liver Disease actually in 2010 came up with a working definition. They said, so acute and chronic liver failure was acute de deterioration of pre-existing chronic liver disease, usually related to a preceding event and associated with increased mortality at three months due to multi-system organ failure. Uh, contrasting it with acute liver failure, cerebral edema is not a defining feature. People with acute on chronic liver failure usually do not get cerebral edema. It occurs in patients who have pre-existing liver disease or cirrhosis. And like I have mentioned, liver dysfunction is probably partially reversible, though in most cases, return to baseline is usually not possible. So the most widely effect, you know, accepted definition is coagulopathy, which is you know, greater, uh, INR greater than 1.5, any degree of encephalopathy, can pre-existing li liver disease and a duration of illness of less than 26 weeks. And the key concepts are the, re the reversibility, the precipitating uh, the event, and increased short-term mortality from multiple organ failure. And this is in cartoon format. Uh, you know, what I have just talked about. So again, there are two cartoons here because, you know, this is my own slide. So, uh, I, and, I for, and I actually forgot to, you know, uh, put on it what uh, decompensated cirrhosis looks like. So, so this red line down here is what, you know, chronic decompensation of cirrhosis looks like. It's a, an inexorable progressive decline of liver function and which leads to manifestations, you know, further down the line. However, acute on chronic liver failure, you know, occurs because there is a uh, acute insult in, uh, you know, with relatively preserved liver function, and then you, uh, then you go down into this uh, multiple organ failure pathway, and you can recover, but never to baseline. And these are, and you know, this, this, this diagram, up, uh, this cartoon up here just shows that, you know, if you, if you suffer another insult and there is a multiple insult, there are multiple insults, then you can either recover or you can deteriorate further. 
Okay, this is data from the Canonic study, all right, which actually provided us with the greatest data on acute on chronic liver failure. So they took a variety of patients who presented to the hospital with decompensated cirrhosis, all right, and decompensated cirrhosis was defined as, you know, you, you could have a GI bleed, you could have hepatic encephalopathy, you could have a slight rise in creatinine, you might, you know, you might have come in with SPP, bacteremia, so on and so forth. And then using the criteria, the working group criteria, they, they, uh, they separated people into people who they thought had acute on chronic liver failure and people who they thought did not have acute on chronic liver failure. The people who had acute on chronic liver failure were scored with something called Cliff Sofa. Cliff Sofa is uh, chronic liver failure serial organ failure assessment score. Okay, and, and they predict, and they said, well, you know, let's see what happens to mortality. And they found that, you know, about 415 patients or 31% of these people who presented with decompensated cirrhosis had acute and chronic liver failure. Mortality was 33%, this was average mortality. And of course, you know, it is no surprise as the number of organs, organs failing predicted mortality. So if you had one organ failure, you had an 18% mortality. If you had two, you had a 32% mortality. And if you had three, you had greater than a 70% mortality, all right? So the average mortality turned out to be about 33% as compared to, you know, 2% 2, 2 in people who did not have acute on chronic liver failure. Bacterial infections were the most common insult that caused the acute deterioration leading to acute and chronic liver failure. However, a caveat, bacterial infections only accounted for 35% of the acute insults, all right? So there were a variety of other reasons that, you know, that, that, uh, that happens uh, for these people to get acute and chronic liver failure. The kidney was the most common organ to fail, and it was, had the strongest association with mortality. All right, so uh, shifting gears, you know, we'll talk about each, some unique manifestations of, uh, of cirrhosis now. Uh, everyone is familiar with hepatic encephalopathy. I don't have to belabor all of these slides too much. So it's a neuropsychiatric sy uh, syndrome. There are disturbances in consciousness and behavior. There are progressive classes. There are distinctive electroencephalographic changes. It might be, they might be acute might be reversible, might be chronic, and you know, it is associated with mortality in, in the most severe cases. Okay, these are some of the precipitating factors. Uh, again, I'm not going to read out all of the precipitating factors. The two most common precipitating factors, in my view, are and in the literature, are probably infections, you know, especially spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and UTIs, and the second one is, is you know, non-compliance with therapy for, uh, you know, for hepatic encephalopathy. But again, you can, you know, it, it is like we were, I was rounding in the MICU with, uh, with the teams yesterday, and, you know, so they, uh, they're, uh, the question was asked was, you know, who is at risk for candidiasis in the ICU? And the correct answer is probably everyone. You can just, you know, you can pick a precipitating factor and, you know, it will probably <coughs> cause hepatic encephalopathy. You just pick it out of your brain and it, in some way or the other it is probably associated with hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, this is the West Haven classification of hepatic encephalopathy. Again, I've put it up there for a singular reason. So when we talked about acute on chronic liver failure and the prognostication of acute on chronic liver failure, one of the prognosticating factors, you know, one of the prognosticating factors is the cliff sofa score, and the cliff sofa score takes into account neurological dysfunction. So if you look at regular sofa scores, neurological dysfunction is Glasgow Coma Scale. If you look at the cliff sofa score, neurological dysfunction is graded by the West Haven classification of hepatic encephalopathy. 
Okay, there is actually an international society for hepatic encephalopathy and nitrogen metabolism. All right, in 1997, they had this consensus statement where they where they said well, where they looked at cognitive function and they looked at grades of encephalopathy and you know gra graded it uh, in, a, in a continuum from unimpaired to covert HE to you know stage two, three, and four, with four being coma. Uh, what I can tell you is that this boundary between unimpaired and covert HE, all right, or grade one HE and this unimpaired is something called minimal hepatic encephalopathy, all right. And although you know you might not pick it up on just regular clinical exam. There are people have impaired driving skills. They have, and if you do formal neuropsychological testing, neuropsychiatric testing, there are abnormalities. And it is associated with some worse prognosis. Okay. Uh, a word about the role of ammonia. You know, it is not benign. So when, a little bit about the history of ammonia. So when Ammonia was in the, back in the 1950s when ammonia was being correlated with hepatic encephalopathy. What was very clear was that as the grades of hepatic encephalopathy increased, you had increasing ammonia levels. What was also very clear was that people, you know, with stage four, with, you know, really severe hepatic encephalopathy might have normal ammonia levels. So this led to two schools of thought. One school was, well, ammonia is positively co correlated with hepatic encephalopathy. The other school of thought was, well, ammonia is useless because, you know, we, uh, we, even, in, uh, even in high grades of hepatic encephalopathy, you know, you might not find very elevated ammonia levels. But you know, one thing was very, very clear, that if you had high ammonia levels, all right, if you had really high ammonia levels, all right, there was an increasing grade of encephalopathy associated with the ammonia levels. And, you know, what these two cartoons show you, and, you know, I'm, this talk is not about ammonia, and if I, you know, if this talk, if I was giving grand rounds in uh, ammonia and the pathophysiology of ammonia and hepatic encephalopathy, I would show you lots of MRI images and, and, and things of that nature, where I could tell you that ammonia is definitely neurotoxic. Now, whether it acts as a Trojan horse or it acts as an osmolite and causes low-level cerebral edema or mitochondrial failure, and these are all molecular mechanisms up for debate, but it is definitely pathophysiological and it is definitely neurotoxic. So, although there is overlap of ammonia and the degree of encephalopathy, there is a distinct correlation between higher levels of ammonia and grades of encephalopathy. Ammonia is neurotoxic and no matter what GI tells you, all right, no matter what GI tells you, in grade four encephalopathy, please monitor and treat ammonia levels. Okay, so moving on to infections and cirrhosis. So the first, the most common infection uh, or what people usually talk about is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So let's just get this out of the way. All right, so the diagnosis is 250 neutrophils. Uh, 500 is more specific, but because infections are the mo major cause of deterioration of in, in people with cirrhosis and uh, we don't want to miss anything, we use a cutoff of 250. Now. Remember, these values of 250 and 500 have all come about with people who have tested positive in their acidic fluid for, so the, their culture positive acidic fluid for, for, for peritonitis, all right? So no one actually knows, uh, you know, what normal values are and, you know, how many cells a, a patient with cirrhosis usually walks around with, and no one's, no one, no one's ever tested that. Um, one point of caution is that if a patient with cirrhosis gets admitted to the hospital and has ascites, please stab them and make sure that they do not have SPP. Clinical, it has been shown over and over again that clinical judgment is not enough. It is frequently missed and signs and symptoms are frequently absent. 
subtract every one. Uh, so again, if you have just like with LPs, you know, if you have a if you have greater than 10,000 RBCs and there is hemorrhagic ascites, you need to account for the RBCs uh, in the ascites. And SPPs caused by gram-positive organisms in particular are associated, have often been reported. So cell counts of less than 250 have often, often been reported, especially with gram-positive organisms causing SPP. So be, be very careful. I'm, I think in just what I'm telling you is that you need to use your clinical judgment when you are treating these patients. And it is probably better to treat than not to treat, given the propensity of acute decline in people who have very little reserve. Okay, these are the, some of the risk factors for mortality. Uh, what you control is highlighted in this red box. It is just effective therapy, all right? It is just early detection and effective therapy. That is all you control. And I have some slides that I will present to you in, you know, in just a little bit about you know, how important recognizing it and treating early, and treating SPP early is. Okay, so infections are the leading cause of mortality in cirrhosis. Uh, there are a variety of bad consequences if you get them, including acute kidney injury, acute and chronic liver failure, prolonged hospitalizations, delisting from transplant. This is some of my data. Uh, and again, given the limitations, I, I acknowledge the limitations of administrative databases. So this is data from the national inpatient sample, which is maintained by the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality. And on the x-axis are total number of admissions for cirrhosis and severe sepsis on, on the y-axis, I'm sorry, on the x-axis is years. And as you can see, the number of hospitalizations for cirrhosis and severe sepsis are steadily increasing over time. Uh, the, this is in the number of thousands. So it's actually, you know, so the 20 means 20,000 admissions, 60 means 60,000 admissions. This is per year. This is national data. These are some of the mortality trends. Mortality trends are decreasing, but cirrhosis actually is an important independent predictor of mortality. All right, so the blue line shows just people with cirrhosis without infection. The, uh, sorry, the light blue line, the, the deep blue line shows you people with severe sepsis without cirrhosis, and the, and the white line on top shows you people with cirrhosis and sepsis. Okay, contrary to popular belief, all right, UTIs are at least as common as SPPs. And in, according to uh, Jasmohan Bajaj, who, uh, you know, who, who is one of the uh, founding members of the National uh, or the North American Consortium of End-Stage Liver Disease, UTIs are actually even more common than SPPs. Uh, if you look at infections and cirrhosis in people who are hospitalized, only one-third are community-acquired. The rest are you know, either healthcare associated or nosocomial, okay? And second infections in the hospital are very, very common. They're largely preventable. So, you know, they're either catheter-associated UTIs, line infections, clostridium, clostridium difficile, and so on and so forth. So this study from the, uh, again, from the North American Consortium of End-Stage Liver Disease, uh, uh, you know, looked at second infections in severe sepsis. So these were all people coming in with first infections, and then they looked at, you know, how many of them developed, developed a second infection. And among first infections, 25% were UTIs, 23% were SPP, uh, Clostridium difficile was 5%, and Clostridium difficile was associated with the highest mortality, okay, and the strongest predictor of in-hospital mortality was the acquisition of a second infection. So this is in graphical format, or, or in, uh, in graphical format of the distribution of infections and the percentage of first and second infections according to body site. So if you got a first infection, now the, the community-acquired infections were defined as an infection occurring within 48 hours of hospitalization if you had not been hospitalized in the previous six months, right? 
Healthcare-associated infections were defined as infections occurring 48 hours, within 48 hours of hospitalization, but you had to have a hospitalization of at least two days within, uh, within the preceding six months. And nosocomial infections were infections occurring after 48 hours. If you looked at first infections, which is the graph on your left, you could see that you know, SPPs accounted for about 27% of infections, so did UTIs. Uh, okay, and a lot of SBPs and, and the blue bars show community-acquired infections, the uh, pink bars show uh, healthcare-associated infections, and the uh, green bars show nosocomial infections. And of all the nosocomial infections, 10% were SBPs, all right, a lot of them were UTIs, and they were 23% C. diff. Now, please keep this in mind. We'll come back to it in a minute. This is, you know, this is really important. And if you, looked at, if you look at the, uh, or to the graph on your right, uh, and this is, this is a graph representing percentages of first and second body infection, uh, first and second infection according to body site. Okay, again, you, could, you can see that you know, when you acquire a second infection, most of them are UTIs and respiratory infections. Okay? And so if you combine them all together, if you combine all infections together, UTIs actually emerge as the most common infection in people with cirrhosis. Uh, okay, why, you know, why this is important is because of the emergence of resistant path you know, uh, organisms and pathogens. So there are two studies, one by Fernandez, one by Murley, and both showed that 35% of nosocomial infections were multidrug resistance, and the current therapy is grossly inadequate. So if you acquire an SPP in the hospital after 48 hours, the therapy that is generally recommended, you know, your third generation cephalosporins, are, is probably going, not going to be very adequate, and you should think of broadening antibiotic coverage, uh, you know, in, in these patients. So extended spectrum beta-lactamase organisms are the most commonly uh, isolated uh, multidrug resistant organisms, and some of the risk factors for uh, multidrug res resistance organisms are, of course, nosocomial infection. If you're prophylaxed with norfloxacin, which is very common, use of beta-lactams in the preceding three months, and prior infections by multidrug resistant organisms. Okay, so uh, in the hospital, lots of people acquire C. diff. Be cognizant with this. This is associated with the highest mortality in people who have underlying cirrhosis, and these outcomes are worse, even though the people who acquire them are, their mean age is way smaller than the people who do not acquire C. diff. Okay. Uh, organ dysfunction and clinical deterioration can be rapid. So uh, they these people frequently require ICU for shock. Uh, resuscitation strategies are unclear at this time. Uh, use of albumin, you know, whether you should use albumin or some other resuscitation fluid. Uh, what sort of vasopressor should you use? Should you use vasopressin uh, early or not? Uh, adrenal insufficiency, use of steroids, whether you should control coagulopathy or not. And one thing that I'm probably not going to touch on a whole lot, whole, excuse me, a whole lot today uh, is, the is the support of, is the role of reverse liver support devices uh, in the people with, not, now there is a distinct role in acute liver failure, but the role in chronic liver failure remains very, very unclear. Okay. Uh, this is the importance of antibiotic therapy. That's something that is in your control. This is data from the CATS database. This is maintained by Anand Kumar in Canada. Uh, he looked at 635 patients with severe sepsis and found that one-fourth of them received the wrong antibiotic therapy. Seven to eight percent never got the right antibiotic till death. The median time of administration was seven hours. All right. So th these are people with septic shock and who have cirrhosis. All right. The medium time time of administration of an antibiotic was seven hours, and of course, uh, 
you know, in a, the inappropriate antibiotic was, you know, associated with death, and the overall overall mortality was 75%. Now, this again, this is very similar data to what we get from the national inpatient sample from the United States. So, I showed you the data of mortality from uh, severe sepsis. What I didn't show you was the line with septic shock, and if you actually, you know pull out data from the national inpatient sample and study people with cirrhosis and septic shock, the mortality is about 75-80%. Okay, we move on to acute kidney injury uh, and some renal challenges. So uh, because of the tenuous baseline hemodynamics, uh, you know, people with cirrhosis are predisposed to acute inju kidney injury. It occurs with minimal of hemodynamic insults. Uh, so this was the same canonic study I was showing you, uh, saying that AKI is the most common extrahepatic injury in acute on chronic liver failure. It's the major contributor to mortality. Uh, it is a classic trigger for type 1 hepatorenal syndrome, and we'll come to, you know, what the distinctions of type 1 and type 2 hepatorenal syndromes are. Uh, renal dysfunction is uh, very common, and people with cirrhosis who get AKI can develop metabolic acidosis really, really quickly, all right? And, uh, you know, the necessitating the con consideration for early uh, renal replacement therapy. These are some of the conventional uh, hepatorenal syndrome diagnostic criteria. These, this is from the International Ascites Club, now published in 2007. And I, so I will read these out with, uh, you know, with a purpose. So it's cirrhosis with ascites, a serum creatinine of 1.5 milligrams per deciliter, absence of shock, absence of hypovolemia, which is defined by no improvement in renal function despite administration of volume, uh, no current or recent treatment of nephrotoxic drugs and absence of parenchymal renal disease as defined by proteinuria of 0.5 grams a day or microhematuria and normal renal ultrasonography. Now, you know, it becomes clearly evident what these, what problems with these definitions are, right? So, firstly, creatinine is a bad measure of, of renal function anyway, especially in people with cirrhosis who have muscle wasting and don't have normal, you know, normal liver function. Secondly, are you really telling me that, you know, people with CHOP can't develop type 1, you know, can't develop hepatorenal syndrome, or people with, or if I have corrected hypovolemia, you know, they are, you know, or the measures of hypo, or, the, or these measures of hypovolemia are actually very accurate, or that in the, in the presence of a nephrotoxic drug, I can't develop hepatorenal syndrome. So again, you know, so very, very exclusive criteria, and, you know, not very well, so not the best at picking up everyone who has uh, hepatorenal syndrome. These were, the, you know, these were the typical type, these were the typical classifications of type 1 and type 2 hepatorenal syndrome. So type 1 hepatorenal syndrome for your purpose, for all practical purposes, is acute kidney injury. So it occurs with an acute insult, all right? And it is characterized by a rapid rise in creatinine. Okay, type 2 hepatorenal syndrome is more akin to chronic renal failure, and it, it, is, it is an inexorable progressive progression of renal disease in people who have, you know, rapid, uh, of increasing ascites and worsening renal function. Uh, these, this is the pathogenesis of uh, hepatorenal syndrome. Again, you know, it is no different from path the pathogenesis of a lot of other manifestations of, uh, of cirrhosis. The, the central tenet is this flantinic vasodilation, and then something happens, all right? There's an acute insult. Either there's a bacterial infection, or there's a GI bleed, or you have a lot of diarrhea, or you're overdiuresed, but that effective arterial volume is decreased further, which leads to this vicious cycle of activation of neurohormonal symptom, uh, uh, neurohormonal mediators, sympathetic nervous system, and then, you know, renal tubular injury and hepatorenal syndrome. 
Okay. So these are, we, we already talked about some of these challenges, but uh, you know, it, so, so hepatorenal syndrome is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, we, we talked about serum creatinine that, you know, it is probably not the best at estimating renal function. Uh, urine, uh, urine sodium studies or FINAs have limited utility, and I'll show you some data to, sh to suggest that it has limited utility. Creatinine clearance. Uh, is not very helpful, urine sediments are not very helpful, and, uh, you know, volume challenges to distinguish, uh, uh, distinguish HRS and prerenal azotemia is really difficult because it is most of the people with hepatorenal syndrome that I have seen are people who have, you know, people who have edema, uh, so the, the cirrhotics who have, you know, uh, who have a lot of ascites and a lot of edema. And I, for all practical purposes, am lost on what their intravascular volume status is, you know, is like. So uh, just to, uh, you know, this, is, this was a recently published paper about how to differentiate uh, acute tubular necrosis or ATN from non-acute tubular ne necrosis kidney injury in, uh, in severe sepsis. Sorry. And what I just want you to focus on is that the FINA, you know, so they, we have all of these markers that are able to reliably distinguish between uh, non-ATN and ATN, things like NGAL, IL-18, kidney injury molecule 1, fatty acid binding protein, L-type fatty, fatty acid binding protein. But I just want you to focus on the FINA. The FINA is unable to distinguish between people who have ATN and the people who do not have ATN. Okay, so therapy for HRS uh, is directed towards vasoconstriction of both the splatnic circulation and the systemic circulation, along with repletion of volume, especially with albumin. Albumin probably has you know, more effects than just repletion of volume. It is an antioxidant and it does a variety of other things in liver disease that I won't get into right now. Uh, the, the vasoconstrictors of choice are telepressin or mitodrine and octreotide. A recent randomized controlled trial in Italy actually demonstrated that telrepressin and albumin was much better at reversing renal failure in hepatorenal syndrome than uh, octreotide and mitodrine and albumin. Okay, now telrepressin is not available in the United States, all right? And so we make do with mitodrine, octreotide, and albumin, but, you know, telrepressin seems to be better even in meta-analysis of studies where, you know, therapies for vasoconstrictive therapies for uh, for hepatorenal syndrome are studied, the, most of the data is skewed towards the vasoconstrictor because of, you know, the, because of the effect of telrepressin. All right, there are some other therapies, uh, you know, that are out there in the literature. Uh, you know, I would probably, I, I've put these up here, I would probably not recommend all of these things, but, you know, norepinephrine, vasopressin has been studied, TIPS has been studied, Mars, albumin dialysis has, be, has been studied. Uh, the one thing that we should keep in mind is that, you know, if people have long-standing hepatorenal syndrome and, you know, have been on continuous re renal replacement therapy, uh, for more than six to eight weeks, a consideration for liver kidney transplant should be given. So transplant as it was, you know, previously thought that transplanting a liver leads to reversal of hepatorenal syndrome and kidney injury is no longer true, all right? In many cases, it does not lead to a reversal of acute kidney injury. And therefore, uh, you know, consideration, careful consideration should be given uh, to combine liver kidney transplant. Now, who gets a liver kidney transplant and who does not is, you know, up for debate, and we do not, we are not very clear about, you know, who we should, you know, transplant both organs, but careful consideration uh, should be given, and there is limited data, again, about reversal of especially type 1 HRS post-liver transplantation. Uh, this is a slide on prognosis of... Uh, 
uh, of hepatorenal syndrome. Again, if you develop uh, type 1, uh, and these are, of course, you know, people who did not get transplanted, and if you develop type 1 hepatorenal syndrome, you know, most of them are not alive at six months, all right? And the graph in between actually shows you type 2 hepatorenal syndrome, and the, and the graph on top shows you, showed, shows you cirrhosis with, uh, cirrhosis with ascites but without hepatorenal syndrome. Again, so if you develop type 1 hepatorenal syndrome in the absence of transplantation, there is not much that you can do. And if so, you know, that probably, uh, and I'll show you a couple of slides of my data again, of you know how, uh, how even you know dialysis therapy is 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 not very effective. So, uh, you know, no. So, considering all of the limitations of the uh, of you know diagnosis of hepatorenal syndrome and the challenges, the the consortium got together and said, you know, we really need a uh, revised classification of renal dysfunction in, uh, in cirrhosis, and and sort of said, well, you know, there is a spectrum of disorders, and, and instead of ca calling them hepatorenal syndrome, we should actually call them hepatorenal disorders. And they proposed a definition of acute kidney injury in cirrhosis, which was 0.3 milligram increase in serum creatinine, or more than a 50% increase from a stable baseline in less than 48 hours. Now, this is very similar to rifle, to akin, and, and a variety of other things, all right? So all of these classifications that you're familiar with, except that in cirrhosis, they have no classes, all right? You just have acute kidney injury. There's no AKI1, AKN2, or rifle, or, or the stages of rifle. There is just acute kidney injury. And which means that type 1 HRS now falls as under acute kidney injury and a type of acute kidney injury. This was validated in a recently published paper where, you know, they, they use the criteria of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter of serum creatinine or rise from 50% uh, from a stable base, baseline and uh, looked at people who had infections and found that more than 50% of the uh, people developed AKI during hospitalization. This accurately predicted mortality and in the people who did not recover renal function, mortality was 10 times higher. All right, this is very similar to some of the data I'm going to show you. This is, again, my data. It's not, it's not published as yet. It's, uh, it's actually uh, out in review. Uh, so it's, you know, so I've put it as unpublished data. These are the percentage of patients with spontaneous bacterial. I picked spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, you know, the, probably one of the most common infections in cirrhosis, and people who had AKI who required new dialysis. So as you can see, through the years, you know, we have actually been dialyzing these patients more and more often. But mortality is flat, okay? We haven't done one, uh, one thing to mortality. So, uh, so the lower graph is people who have SBP. The middle graph is people who have SBP with acute kidney injury. And the top graph is people with SBP who, who have AKI and require hemodialysis or, or renal replacement therapy. So mortality is just, we have done nothing to mortality in people who actually require hemodialysis in these, uh, in, 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 in cirrhotics. Okay. So, a couple of words about prevention of ARS, uh, of uh, hepatorenal syndrome or any sort of acute kidney injury. So again, the administration of albumin in people with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis was associated with a reduction of the incidence of uh, hepatorenal syndrome. In patients with low protein ascites and moderate to severe, uh, severe liver disease, prophylaxis with norfloxacin uh, reduces, uh, reduces the incidence of HRS. What, what both of these studies actually tell you is that SBP is an important risk factor for the development of hepatorenal syndrome, probably because of, you know, exacerbation of splatnic vasodilation. Okay, 
coming to uh, gastrointestinal issues, so this is just the, the picture on your left is of a variceal hemorrhage. The uh, picture on your right is of a red whale sign, uh, which is sort of a linear, you know, on endoscopy you can find this, you know, sort of protruding red linear sign, uh, which actually predicts who's going to bleed and who's not going to bleed. Uh, so the predictors of hemorrhage are just variceal size, these presence of these red whale signs, and the class and the severity of liver dysfunction as defined by the child's bug score. Uh, transfusion strategies, who should you transfuse and whatnot. So this is, and I think everyone is familiar with this paper, uh, we are all restricted with transfusion. Every paper that comes out now says, you know, less is more, and that we should probably be restricted with transfusion, similarly for GI bleeds. So in the subgroup, so they took a whole a variety of people with GI bleeds, but in the subgroup of cirrhotics, rates of, if you, you know, if you had a restrict restrictive transfusion threshold, rates of re-bleeding were less, uh, recruitment maneuvers were, uh, sorry, requirement of rescue maneuvers was less, and the mean hepatic venous pressure gradient was increased in the patients who were in the liberal transfusion group. Now, I don't want you to take this to mean that people who are exsanguinating to death should not get blood, all right? So people who are pouring out blood, I'm not sure you should wait to a hemoglobin of seven before you actually, and you, you, you actually say, well, the hemoglobin's eight, but you know, they just vomited a liter of blood, and we should, uh, you know, and we should not give them blood. I don't think, you know, this means, uh, you know, the, the, the study is telling you to do that. It is just telling you that in cases where there is hemodynamic stability, where you can wait, uh, and you know, and use your clinical judgment, that a restrictive transfusion strategy is much better than a liberal transfusion strategy. Uh, pharmacological therapy of varices you know, is, uh, again, with vasoconstrictive uh, constrictive agents. Uh, please do not forget to give an antibiotic to anyone with cirrhosis who has an upper GI bleed, all right? Prevents SPP and prevents re-bleeding. Okay, these are some of the uh, definitive therapies, which is endoscopic band ligations, sclerotherapy, TIPS. Uh, liver transplantation, surgical shunts. Most of you are familiar with endospo endoscopic band therapy. That is what we, you know, that is what we usually do. Uh, in cases, every now and then, uh, my GI colleagues will uh, put in a Minnesota tube to uh, stop variceal hemorrhage in in, uh, uh, in people who who, we, who they can't control. Otherwise, uh, every now and then we'll send a patient down for tips in people that we can't control the uh, the bleeding from. But in the in the presence of a non-stoppable bleeding, you know, the, doing a TIPS might stop the bleeding, but there's a very high associated mortality. And it's probably not from the TIPS, it's just probably, you know, as a result of how sick the patient is. Uh, Intra-abdominal hypertension is a frequent occurrence and is underdiagnosed in people who have cirrhosis, especially people who have big ascites. All right. Uh, Remember, because of the tenuous hemodynamic state of cirrhosis and the lower blood pressures and the lower mean arterial pressures and the uh, vasodilated systemic circulation, even small rises in intra-abdominal pressure can severely impair perfusion to intra-abdominal organs. So, uh, you know, this should be treated. So, my, and the classical teaching of, well, you should not take off too much ascites because it leads to post-paracentesis uh, post circulatory dysfunction, you know, has to be taken with a grain of salt because I think, you know, renal impairment from intra-abdominal hypertension is more of a concern in a critically ill patient than, you know, you can, I can always give albumin and, you know, and restore the systemic circulation, but, you know, you really need to be very cognizant about, about this entity, which is probably underdiagnosed in people with cir cirrhosis and ascites.
this is something that all of you should know. Ileus is common. Uh, lactulose causes ileus. It can be exacerbated by ileus. And this recently published study in, uh, in JAMA, which compared lactulose and just a standard bowel prep, actually showed that the time to resolution of hepatic encephalopathy was way faster if you used mm -hmm. a four liter bowel prep than if you used lactulose. So you might give consideration you know, of, a, of a peg bowel prep uh, for his advanced encephalopathy in your, you know, in, in your uh, ICU patients, especially if they are you know, intubated, mechanically ventilated, and so on and so forth. I have actually you know, almost uh, switched in people who are mechanically ventilated to peg bowel preps in people and, and you know, have stopped using lactulose uh, for my cirrhotics. There are some unique pulmonary derangements in cirrhosis, uh, pul pulmonary artery hypertension, hepatic hydrothorax, hepatopulmonary syndrome, ascites-induced restrictive lung disease. I'll talk about a few. So hepatic, uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome is a unique syndrome uh, which is due to the diffusion impairment of, transf of uh, oxygen because there is dilation. The pathophysiology is probably vascular dilatation of the pulmonary vascular bed. And this is thought to be because of nitric oxide that emanates from the hep hepatic venous drainage into the IVC. Uh, so characterized by hypoxemia in the absence of a radiographic uh, radiograph, very interesting physiology. So it's platypnea and orthodeoxia, which means that you get hypoxemic and feel short of breath when you stand up instead of lay down, which is what happens in heart failure. This is because there's a predominance of these vascular dilatations in vest zone three, which is the lower part of the lungs. Uh, there is an increased mortality. You get a meld exception. If, uh, 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 and it is documented when I'll, I have a, I have an echo to show you what you know, hepatopulmonary syndrome actually looks like on echo and how you diagnose it. But one of the things that, uh, that, the, you, know, that uh, you should be cognizant or you should be aware of is that if you transplant these people, it usually reverses. Okay? The outcomes post-transplant are dependent on what the shunt fraction is pre-transplant. And interestingly enough, hypoxemia can persist, you know, it can persist for some time after transplant. And sometimes these people require a lot of oxygen. And we just, I just invoked nitric oxide as the pathophysiology of the syndrome. But interestingly enough, post-transplant, you can give nitric oxide to improve the hypoxemia. For some weird reason, you know, this hypoxemia is very, very responsive to nitric oxide. And now we have had several patients who we have actually given epoprostenol, inhaled Flowland to, uh, to improve the hypoxemia and get them off ventilators and things of that nature. And you know, eventually all of this improves and they get off, uh, you know, they get off the uh, inhaled flow line and things of that na and, and things of that nature. The only randomized control, an interesting tidbit, and the only randomized control trial for hepatopulmonary syndrome is garlic, four grams of garlic a day, and it uh, and it has been shown to improve hypoxemia. So that's the only randomized control trial available in this. Okay, this is what. Uh, so this is late appearing bubbles in this thing. So if you have an intracardiac shunt, you know, so this is a bubble study on an echo, the bubbles will go over, but now you can see them appearing, you know, this is after a few cycles, and now they appear in the, in the left ventricle from the right ventricle. So this is sort of diagnostic of an intrapulmonary shunt in the correct setting, in the correct setting of cirrhosis, this is diagnostic of hepatopulmonary syndrome. Okay, portopulmonary hypertension is, uh, so I have a few minutes, all right. Portopulmonary hypertension is, 
sorry, is histologically identical to uh, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, there are a variety of mechanisms that I won't get into, uh, but you have to be very cognizant that this is an entity and you, know, and you can precipitate RV failure in these people very, very quickly. Okay, and so for example, if you do a TIPS in these, you know, always people who get a tip, TIPS always get an echo to make sure their RVs are fine because doing a TIPS is, is, uh, is, is like a volume infusion into the RV and you, know, people can, you can throw people into RV failure very, very quickly. Uh, these are uh, these are some of the diagnostic criteria. Again, you know, it, uh, you, uh, if you do an echo and the right ventricular systolic pressure is above 50, this actually prompts a right heart cath. Uh, and if you have a mean pulmonary artery pressure over 25 and a PVR over four, 240, this is you know this is considered as portopulmonary hypertension. Uh, if they have severe pulmonary hypertension, they can still be candidates for transplant. So no, if you have severe pulmonary hypertension, you can transplant them. Did, people do very, very poorly. However, if you can improve their pulmonary pressures and give them, and what has been, what has been most studies, studied is probably Flolan, if you give them that and you decrease their pulmonary artery pressures to less than 35, then they become, then they become candidates of uh, transplant. In contrast to portopulmonary hypertension, the degree of reversibility of, I'm sorry, in contrast to hepatopulmonary syndrome, the degree of reversibility of portopulmonary hypertension after transplant is very variable. Okay, so this is, this is just, you know, one of our patients who we treated for uh, 18 months with, uh, uh, with flowland therapy, with IV flowland therapy, and, you know, they, they got their pulmonary artery pressures down and was finally able to, and we were finally able to get them transplanted. Okay. Uh, hepatic hydrothorax is a uh, unique manifestation of uh, cirrhosis. This is just ascites going up into your pleural space because of defects in the diaphragm. Sometimes you might not find any ascites, just hyd hepatic hydrothorax if the defects are uh, large enough. These might get infected, all right? And the diagnostic criteria is actually similar to, uh, 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 to spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Uh, the treatment is maximization of diuretic therapy. So you can perform thoracentesis. Uh, Please, you know, if you if a chest tube is required, please don't be, you know don't put them on suction and don't don't put in large bore chest tubes because you know ascites keeps forming and you will continue draining it out of the chest and suddenly your patient will become very hypovolemic and you know have shock and, and whatnot and things of that nature. Uh, tips for uh, is uh, usually used for refractory hydrothorax if there are no other contraindications, and if you cannot you know, tips people because they have very, very advanced liver disease, uh, you know, there should be consideration for plurex catheters as you do for malignant pleural effusions and things of that nature to sort of help. Okay, so that is all I have, uh, you know, for the extrahepatic manifestations of cirrhosis. I wanted to leave you with a perspective of what I tell my critical care fellows. This is how you treat all your patients. So first, you intubate your patient, attach the trachea to a ventilator that resembles the front cockpit of a Dreamliner, and then you adjust so that your pH is 7.40, PCO2 is 40, PO2 is 100. You perform an AVG every five minutes, bolus bicarbonate, hydrochloric acid for metabolic problems, add remove dead space for respiratory problems. All of this fails, you know, please paralyze your patient. You know, insert an arterial line, maps less than 65, you can start all of these things. There's, please don't waste time in, in figuring out what, what type of shock it is. These drugs will cure all types of shock. They're already available in a pre-mixed gallon of gallon jug that is ready to infuse. If the heart rate is less than 50, give atropine. You know, greater than 135, give metoprolol. Uh, it's advisable to keep the mean arterial raising solution on hand if you're giving metoprolol. So please insert a rectal tube. 
this keep sheet this will keep the sheets clean laundry happy it makes rectal, rectal exams impossible okay insert an ng tube infuse melox and a dulcolax you know the diarrhea prevent you know, will uh, will prevent clogging of the rectal tube you know once the diarrhea has occurred please check for c diff you know don't forget to check for c diff you have to insert a pulmonary artery catheter uh, keep the keep CVP at 8, wedge at 14, uh, you have, you know, appropriate solutions to raise all of these pressures and they can be infused through their various ports. Uh, you know, if these pressures rise above stated levels, please suck blood out through a 50cc syringe. But be cognizant that if you do that, you might require PRBC transfusion or you can give pre-mixed solutions of Manitol, Lasix and Bumex. So hearing aid is provided by manufacturers if you use the, sol the diuretic solution. And although, you know, it is very difficult keeping the CVP at 8, wedge at 14, you know, Remember, this is your most important job. Okay, insert Foley catheter, keep urine output at 40 plus or minus two mLs per hour. If it is less than 40, you can use the balanced uh, solution. Sorry, if it is greater than 40, you can tighten the adjustable clamp on the Foley <laughs> and, and reduce the flow rate. Okay, start low-dose heparin. Uh, you can administer all of these antibiotics. You don't need cultures because these antibiotics will kill every organism known to mankind. Okay, if white stuff forms at the mouth, please add fluconazole. Okay, consult the nutrition service, start enteral feeding, diarrhea develops, switch to half strength, you know, when it persists, right, uh, go to isoosmolar, and when it continues, put, please put, put patient on TPN. Uh, when volume overload and hyperglycemia develop, you know, you can discontinue the infusion. So it's now 10 days later. The patient has either recovered or deceased, so keep, please keep away, do not perform a physical exam. You will only get tangled up in lines, tubes, or trip over a wire. So eye patches, Ted stockings, bunny, hose, uh, bunny boots make exam difficult anyway. Uh, keep in your mind that you know, the patient might be actually dead. <laughs> this is easily overlooked. The respirator makes it look like uh, he's breathing. Pacemakers look like the heart is breathing. Uh, arterial pressure of zero is just a clogged line. You might be able to unassess. Uh, please don't be fooled. If in doubt, please ask. All right, that's all I have. Thank you so much. I'm happy to take questions. All right. Thank you, Dr. Manchal. That's great. Um, it's a real pleasure. Uh, it's nice to have the David Letterman rundown because this my my mind was spinning with, with all the information I needed to know. So uh, yeah, Fred, you you got a question? Uh, this is a question that's been coming up frequently. Liver patients have very wide pulse pressures. Yes. So in a septic liver patient with a wide pulse pressure on levo or, or, or basal activations, do you titrate to a MAP of 65 or can you get away with titrating to, to a systolic? So the question is because liver patients have very wide pulse pressures and if they become septic, what do you titrate the, your mean arterial pressure to? So do you titrate to a systolic pressure or a mean arterial pressure? Uh, good question. Never been studied. Correct answer, I don't know. I can tell you what I do. I, I always titrate to a mean arterial pressure because uh, you know, that is usually perfusion pressure. But, but really no data on you know, what you should do. Do you ever lower your <coughs> mean arterial pressure goal? So, uh, good question. Again, the, the, uh, the answer, I can do, tell you what I do personally because there is no data. No, I don't because there is this suggestion that renal autoregulation curves are shifted to the right. <laughs> In, uh, in people with cirrhosis and they are, you know, and they have renal vasoconstriction and are hypoperfused anyway. So, you know, I try and keep the blood pressure. I, I, that is the reason I do not try and generally, you know, lower my low goals of blood pressure. Now, having said that, what is the mean, mean arterial pressure target? You know, that is unknown. Sure, go ahead. We had a, a recent case uh, 
uh, this fall of a patient who had chronic liver disease, came in with an acute exacerbation, so acute on chronic liver disease, who ended up having altered mental status and was in a coma, had a CT of the head and showed cerebral edema. And I think earlier in your talk, you said that these acute on chronics don't typically present with cerebral edema. Sure. He did. He ended up going over for liver dialysis and actually improved his, his GCS enough to, to get sure. to uh, I was wondering if you had any experience with that phenomenon of cerebral sure. edema, or if you have that experience with using extra corporeal liver dialysis for acute on chronic. Sure. So the the question was, uh, you know, there was a case with uh, cerebral edema and acute on chronic liver failure, and uh, I had mentioned that usually these people do not develop cerebral edema. And is there any experience with using uh, liver dialysis or you know Mars device or something of that nature for? And I haven't, I didn't, you know, I didn't touch much on uh, extracorporeal liver support uh, for, a, you know, I was talking for a specific reason. But uh, so you're right, they usually don't. It doesn't mean they can't. So there have been there have been case reports of cerebral edema in, even with chronic liver disease. So in people, you know, who have developed hyperaminemia and things of that nature. And yes, we have used uh, for severe cases of encephalopathy and acute on chronic liver failure. That is where we actually use liver device, and it it is actually associated with you know clearing of encephalopathy and things of that nature. So yes, so that is what uh, you know. So that is what many transplant centers and many centers experiences. Yes, sir. Is there any role for a high dose? Uh, CRRT in cerebral edema? So, uh, high-dose CRRT. So, high-dose CRRT actually is very effective in clearing ammonia. And so what we have found is that, you know, if we start, especially if we, you know, if you make the person hypothermic and then start high-dose CRRT, ammonia levels fall very, very fast. And that might be associated with clearance of cerebral edema. So, whether it directly affects cerebral edema or not, I don't know. How do, you, uh, how do you assess degree of coagulopathy and transfusions accordingly during a, a hemorrhagic shock? Um, do you use TAG? Do you, can you even rely on the INR and typical measures that we use in other patient populations? Uh, so the short answer to the question is uh, probably not. And we do use TAG to sometimes to, you know, uh, uh, to target our resuscitation and, you know, what what products uh, people need. Uh, but yes, you know, there are a variety of hematological issues that I didn't, again, I didn't touch on uh, in my talk. Uh, but uh, usually, you know, INRs are unreliable in, uh, in acute deteriorations and things of that nature. So it is probably better to use TEGS, uh, you know, when you're resuscitating these patients, especially if you're going to, you know, end up giving a lot of FFP and platelet products and things of that nature. Back to the pack, you said, well, yeah. sure. so one of the key things you did say that I think we're starting to do here quite aggressively, and I don't know about the medical, but um, cooling, you said you cool a little bit. Yes. And I think that's very important to know. I don't think a lot of people are doing that. Sure. Because anytime you increase brain metabolism, plus the ones you get rid of the emotions, sure. you change your PKA. Yeah. So, yeah, we do, we do cool, yes. How do we cool again? Uh, so, you can do either R, you can. Do surface cooling or put in an intravascular catheter? CRT. Yeah. CRT. They cool you pretty quick because it boils around. Just, you know, just a regular, yeah. actually, we don't need the sun, but yeah. these people are so basic dilated, it doesn't take much to cool them down. I think the mean questions are a really, really good question. We struggle with that every day in the ICU. I try to teach the fellows that you always got to remember that your, your diastolic coronary artery filling is usually pretty bad. That's yep. Sometimes they even try to teach that maybe you should just push 
the guy started up above 40 and not even use the mean because obviously the mean is going to be higher. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I think you know. So if you push your diastolic above forty, you're probably going to get a mean above sixty. Yeah. Okay. No, good point. It's you know it. So, so one of the things is that you know in in many of these diseases there is no data to guide you for all of these things. So you are so you end up using your physiological principles to you know treat many of these patients. Can you touch on uh, the use of inotropes for the uh, cirrhotic cardiomyopathy that you briefly mentioned? So there are a variety of um, variety of manifestations of cirrhotic ca cardiomyopathy. Uh, things like prolonged QT, electrophysiological disturbances, and things of that nature. Uh, one manifestation is severe systolic, you know, severe dysfunction as well. So it, it can manifest as severe dysfunction. And there, yes, you do end up using a, a, an inotrope. It, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it manifests as diastolic dysfunction and impaired pilling. And you know, sometimes if you use an inotrope for that, it actually in improves lucidotropic properties of the heart, and so you can do that as well. But, uh, but the usual manifestation of cirrhotic cardiomyopathy is, you know, uh, a stress-related inadequate. So the cardiac output, if you actually measure them, is still high, but it is a stress-related inadequate uh, reserve, which you know does not allow you to increase the cardiac output to, to places where where you need to. In those circumstances, I'm very unclear as, as as to what to do. And so, you know, sometimes I do give a trial of an inotrope, but you know that is just physiological. It is not, uh, you know, it, it isn't it isn't backed up by data or any of things. So it's a common theme that you know none of this has any data behind it. And then also to to continue on the lack of data uh, theme. Uh, I think one of the bigger issues that we often deal with is, you know, when is enough enough in terms of therapy? When do you stop therapy? How hard do you push for certain patients? How do you make that distinction? And, uh, you know, what kind of guides you along that path in terms of transplantation, in terms of, uh, you know, how aggressive to be? Sure. So, you know, if a person is is a candidate for liver transplantation, we are usually very aggressive, you know, and so we usually are, you know, we'll put people on CRRT and be very aggressive, use liver support devices and things of that nature. Now, if someone is not a liver transplant candidate and they, they have progressive organ failure, especially if they have aneuric renal failure, you know, that is when we actually, you know, start talking to the family about, uh, you know, about stopping and withdrawing and, you know, that this is not going to end very well. So that, that is, I think, I use a cutoff as, okay, you know, now they have stopped making urine. So they have aneuric renal failure. That is what I personally use, again, without data. Or some data, at least. And, and you say not liver transplant candidate. Is that, uh, you know, on a good day they wouldn't be a liver transplant candidate? Because oftentimes we get these individuals with uh, decompensated cirrhosis uh, that have septic shock that are not a liver transplant candidate at this time. Sure. Quotes, you know. So uh, when that resolves, so how long is it appropriate from your standpoint to treat septic shock to see if they get past it? Would they then be adequate liver transplant candidates from from your standpoint if they have the infectious problem resolved? Sure. So, so great question again. So yes. So the liver, not a liver transplant candidate. I'm you know what I'm talking about is why we would he, this person was drinking two weeks before he got sick. All right. So you know now you have multiple organ failure and you know they won't even be considered for transplant for six months. So those are the people that I, I was talking about. If they can get on the liver transplant list, when they're just not a candidate at this time, we are typically aggressive with these people to see if there is some reversal of if we can you know if we can prevent multiple organ failure or if we can you know actually 
actually reverse their septic shock, get rid of their infection. Now, even if they're on dialysis, you know, they might become a liver, a candidate for a liver or a liver kidney transplant. Dr. Hur, you had a question? Oh, he's not listening. <laughs> I was just, I was just yeah. going to, I just said, we spend a lot of money for people with bad habits. But um, I was just going to mention stuff about, I work in a cardiac ICU. Sure. We're big swan users. So I think a swan's really been helpful when I'm down in the SICU with some of these liver failures to really assess which onotropes are going to work best for us and which ones we want to use. Sure. I, I've certainly seen some improvement, especially with hepatic oral hypertension with milk. Mm-hmm. So that is when we swan early. So if you think about, you know, if they have uh, portopulmonary hypertension, compromised RVs, that is when we swan early. And, you know, they're critically ill. All right. More questions? Okay. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you.